0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: For decades, Milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. Hey, it's Aaron. Before we get going, I want to tell you
2: about a new podcast from Netflix. It's called Present Company with Krista Smith. You may remember Krista Smith as Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood. She's going to give you the inside track on the exceptional people behind your favorite Netflix series, films, documentaries. They have people like Renee Zellweger, Mary J. Blige, Jason Bateman. So I want you to go to the podcast app you are currently listening in and search for present company with Krista Smith. Subscribe. Thank you to Netflix. Here's the show.
3: Hello and welcome to the long form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff co-host of this podcast. I'm here with the other co-hosts, Aaron Lamer and Max Linsky. Hey. Hey, you guys. So this week's show is actually kind of like a, a uh, we're running it back from the live show we did. That's true. We did a live show with this week's guest, Taffy brodesser Uh We never put out the live show, uh, so this covers some of what the live show covered, but also she has a novel out called Fleischman is in Trouble. You may have heard about it everywhere. Um, and it's fabulous. We don't normally cover novels, but it was a good pretext to have her back on the show to talk about both kind of transition from nonfiction to fiction, but also a lot of the stories she's done in the interim between the last time we had her on, where she has moved to the New York Times. One in particular, she did a big story about Kay Jewelers, a Me Too story about sexual harassment and pay disparity there over many years. And she's done a bunch of great profiles. So we do talk about the novel. We also talk about those stories. and. Uh, it's always fun to have Taffy on.
2: Yeah, I feel like uh since the last time she got that job at the New York Times and also just became like uh one of those people that just goes by their first name, she's just like Taffy now. <laughs> uh if uh if you are uh looking for reading this summer, maybe you're just uh finishing Taffy's book, go to Read This Summer. Uh, it's something that is put on by MailChimp every summer. Uh, it culminates
3: in the Decatur
2: Book Festival. You're go, you'll are you be going to the Decatur. I'll be at the Decatur Book yep. Festival,
3: yes. I'll we be on stage talking about crime with uh, Karen Abbott, the author Karen Abbott, uh, with Matt Cher moderating, who's also been on this podcast. And then I am going to do an onstage thing where I ask the questions of James Verini, who has a book coming out about Mosul uh, and the battle for Mosul. So I'll be there. People should come. But if they're even if they're not going to come, they can still go to ReadTheSummer.com. dot com. Well, thanks to Melchimp for supporting that festival, supporting the show.
2: I have another thank you. Well, I hey, just like to say, I was given a piece of feedback. Gratitude that uh, that we don't um, thank the listeners enough on the long form podcast. Oh wow! So I would just like to thank people for listening. That was a piece of feedback someone gave you. Yes. Pretty self serving piece of feedback. Well, Is this from a listener. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and and you guys both know that. Uh, I will, I will feel guilty about something like
3: that. It made me feel guilty. It's kind of a weird piece of feedback, don't you think? Aaron, I think you're missing the spirit of what <laughs> we're trying to do here, which is to appreciate the listeners. Which I, for one, definitely do. Well, I, Evan and I really appreciate everyone who's listening to the show. Thank you. I kid, I kid. I lo- I
2: love the listeners. And I love all the mail. It makes Max feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that makes Max feel bad. <laughs> Keep making me feel bad. Keep uh, listening to the show and also listen to uh, Coin Talk. But for now, here's Evan with uh, Taffy bratisar Ackner.
3: Hello,
0: Taffy. So we meet again, <laughs> Ratliff. <laughs>
3: This is wild, because I listened to our first interview.
0: I love that interview. It's my first podcast.
3: That was your first ever. podcast?
0: Oh. It was this moment where I was like, have I arrived? <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I would always listen to the long form. I was like, "Would I? am I one of these people now?
3: Well, you are in a moment of maximum publicity right now. Yes. And the thing that I am most interested to know is how that feels. Oh, my God.
0: I have a lot of feelings...
3: Did you expect this to be the case?
0: No, I, I never thought... Okay, there are two things here. Number one is that if you, go, if you go to the Museum of Natural History right now, or if you did that a year ago, and you go to the Planetarium show, and you hear Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about the universe and dark matter... He will tell you that no matter where you are in the universe, it feels like you're in the center. It's the craziest thing about the universe. So I have like this journalistic thing kick in and think, like, you know, like sometimes you have a really good tweet and everyone loves it, and you're like, <laughs> I am a maximally like out there. And then you meet people who aren't on Twitter, right? You meet, I meet, people who didn't read the Gwyneth Paltrow profile like it's a very strange so that's a long way of saying no I did not expect that but I don't I also don't know how real it is outside of our circles like I do think now that publicity comes to people who are kind of the low-hanging fruit of it meaning you know I have a desk at the times and I get so many galleys and I don't do book coverage, but I get so many book galleys and I always think, like, how are all these books going to get covered? And I guess the person who has the advantage is the person you know, the person you've heard of, the person you can ask the questions of. And I'm a journalist, so the other journalists know me. I'm fairly prolific. And so I guess that's how it is. I don't know if I answered your question. I did not expect this. And I keep trying to find ways that it's not about my book, (laughs) that it's about like some sort of corruption in the system, (laughs) which might be real, but I don't know. I feel very, very lucky.
3: Well, we should say a little bit about what the this is, which is the book is a novel. Mm -hmm. Fleischman is in Trouble is the name of the book. And when did it come out? Uh, June 18th. But you're still on staff of The New York Times. Yes. Since last we spoke, you're no longer on the GQ No, I contract.
0: Had I already yes, I'd gotten my contract at GQ by the time we spoke. That was
3: right kind of where we were. Right exactly that
0: that moment. And yes, now I'm full time at the New York Times magazine and I also contribute to culture.
3: And when I say like this, like this moment of like fame of some level, part of it is defined by last time we talked. I was sort of cataloging all of the things you'd done within a year. You had freelance for an extraordinary number of publications in that year. And one of them was Cosmo. And you said this sort of offhanded thing, like, if you want to see what I will write for an editor who I'm loyal to, go pick up the most recent Cosmo. And then now if you pick up the most recent Cosmo, there is a profile (laughs) of you by someone else. Yeah.
0: Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Isn't that crazy? I was not disparaging Cosmo. I was saying that my editor who I was very loyal to on her first day at Cosmo, had asked me to write a story about anal sex. And I agreed to do it because I would follow her into whatever Vietnam she needed me to. <laughs> and that particular Vietnam, um, that was proof of that.
3: I did not I did not mean to imply that you were disparaging Thank uh, you. Cosmo. Thank I mean, you. Especially anyway. not when you're on stands there. Well, yeah, <laughs> With photos of you and your dog.
0: And the day in the life of me. Like I how many times have I sat through someone else's day in the life while they walk their dog?
3: So then when people are asking you those questions and are you first of all, do you see the story? When someone has been coming to you and saying I want to profile you or ask you questions, are do you say to yourself, I see what they should be doing or I see what they're doing?
0: Yes. I think I during that interview, that interview was very kind to me in light of how I behaved in it, which was saying things like I don't think that's the question you mean to ask me. You mean to ask me this other question. Or sometimes when I talk to people on the phone who are doing a Q&A with me, I'll say something and I'll say, did you hear that? That's your kicker. If this were me, that would be my kicker. And it's totally obnoxious, but it's really the anxiety of not knowing what I'm doing answering questions. Like Whenever I'm an- answering a question now, it feels like I am taking up space that will be annoying to me when I read the transcript. I have not yet understood that I am not going to be reading the transcript. Mm -hmm. And last weekend, the weekend before my book came out, I was in Atlantic City on a story, and I was so happy to be there because it was this reminder of, oh, wait, this is the thing I do. There's a point at which you're talking about writing so much that you run the risk of not actually being a writer anymore and i was worried that that was happening to me i had closed my jewelry story i wasn't taking on a new story before i left to go tour on my book like i'm i'm not the prolificness with which you found me is something i need to do like i need to be writing or else like i don't think i'm a writer anymore someone once told me a writer is someone who has written today and i'm not a, by that benchmark i am no longer a writer <laughs> and i haven't been for a week
3: I don't, I don't know if I buy that standard of written today.
0: I don't either. Someone, some idiot said it. <laughs> but there you are. You're there. You're, you're my book is right next to you. So I, I yield to you. <laughs> I yield to it your appears belief. you're a writer. It appears this, that I'm a writer. Uh,
3: galley. Um, so are you are you trying to help the person who's interviewing you? Are you sort of like, I'm going to give you these things like here's your lead? Or do you think it'll be more interesting if they... Have to work a little harder.
0: I mean, I don't feel that way at all. I'm just answering the questions. But what I now know is that your instinct is to answer the question as opposed to be thoughtful about the question, which means that everyone I interview, meaning all the celebrities I've interviewed, have been in this kind of impossible situation where they are forced to keep up a conversation with me and they answer but i don't always like sometimes i see a like a pause or a look in their eyes and now i know what that's about which is am i answering this right is this what i wanted to project into the world um i've never been good at stopping for 5 seconds and thinking about a question wait that's... let let try to ask me another question i'll try to pull it off
3: <laughs> <laughs> well did you make any attempt to determine your answers to questions you were expected to be asked and develop concise answers to those questions.
0: See, I'm not really thinking about it. I'm just like I'm just like waiting it out. Um no, I did not know what I would be asked and I concision has never been a concern of mine. Like that concision is To the chagrin of everyone around me, people who are at my book party, anyone else, concision is something I've left in the hands of others. And, you know, that's how I became a long-form writer, is that I just wrote too long. And I'm not good at self-editing. And I don't know how to do that or why I would do that.
3: But it strikes me that the problem with not being concise in this scenario, where you have people interviewing you and then putting it together, which is something you have done to other people is the more you talk, the more material they have to grab from and take one piece, and then that piece ends up being the thing that pops out of the interview.
0: Absolutely. And that's fine with me. I haven't been burned enough in any of these interviews for it to teach me the thing that Gwyneth Paltrow knew by the time I got to her, or Bradley Cooper, which is that you can't be quoted on something you haven't said. So, like, that comes from being burned. I have not yet been burned. Everything that's appeared in stories, I mean, maybe some of it was truncated, but none of it was inaccurate.
3: There was a little bit of controversy around a thing that you said. I don't even say controversy because, like you said earlier, it's one of those things where if you're a media person and you have a Twitter account, you hear about it right, and then five seconds later you're just like talking to someone else that you know that's not one of those people and they would not even comprehend what right. you were talking about but
0: it still has this life online
3: yes so the thing was and it's not
0: really a, like for you right it's like you, you can explain it but the way people spoke about that this thing you that you you say what it is that you're clearly, you say what it is um, I in an interview with Cosmo was talking about negotiating and I told several stories about how I got to my certain word rate. The unfortunate thing about, and the controversy that ensued, the quote was when I started saying I don't get out of bed for less than $4 a word, people started paying me $4 a word. That's not a complete story. And I'm very happy to elaborate on that complete story. But people, from what I can determine, three or four people, though I always know that there are DMs, (laughs) um, (laughs) were outraged about it. But I didn't see it happen, um, but I saw a lot of people defending me, and I was in Atlantic City. I was working. like That was the whole thing. I was working, which may be also a, an answer to a, like a related question about how I got to $4 a word. Like, where <laughs> were you last weekend? <laughs> I was working.
3: Yeah, it was on a weekend. It was
0: a weekend, and it was only by Saturday evening that I was getting text messages. I would never have known about it if people hadn't defended me. So the, it was a very nice way of having a controversy to first see how many people admire you, um, even people I didn't know who admire me. Hmm. Like, that was really amazing. But I was worried, of course, like, what happened? What did I do? Because I have been worried that I'm going to say something very stupid in any of these interviews. That said, this was a thing that I don't feel is controversial. You should tell people what you make. You That's came the on thing. this
3: podcast... And said that the first personal essay that you ever sold to self, Self? you got paid $3 a word.
0: $3 a word. Yeah. And I was very proud of that. And like, I have no, you know, everyone should be making more money. The fact that $4 a word is enviable is a tragedy. It says, everyone know, like, let's, first of all, to clear things up, I no longer make anything a word. I am on staff. But let's take my most recent story, the jewelry story, right? So we had this jewelry story that was assigned to me in 2017. Mm. I went across the country. I interviewed like a hundred women. There
3: were a lot of women in that story. A
0: lot of women in that story. A lot of women you didn't even see were interviewed. I was the subject of many legal letters. I had to have this whole legal education about the way class actions work, about the way sexual harassment works. I had to visit about thirty thousand K jewelers to just like walk in and know what I was talking about. I had to earn the trust of these women, which is like a wildfire thing. A lot of them are conservative and and only heard bad things about the New York Times, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've only heard from our president about the New York Times. And they also were afraid of this company. It took two years of near constant work and interviews and reading Case studies and traveling and leaving my family, and then the resulting story I think was eleven thousand words. So let's say I was making a four dollar word rate, though I never made four dollars at the times. Four dollars times eleven thousand is forty four thousand, which for before taxes, before taxes, you know that turns it into twelve dollars. There goes, Um, but. Those dollars for a two-year story, you know, I I make no justification for it. I just want to know why everyone thinks that that's so much compensation. I understand that it's compared to other people, but... Before before we go on with this, you and I are friends, we've become friends over a few years. So I'm looking at you and I'm talking to you like we're friends. But the truth is, the thing I have to say about this is that I'm not the spokesperson for it, right? Like, I came on the podcast, the first time we met, right? I came on the podcast... How many years ago was it? Was it 2015?
3: Something like that.
0: And the conversation was, who are you and where did you come from and how do you have 15 stories out and how are you doing it with these children running around and you're in your 30s and where where did you come from, right? So like I had this, like the status I had was this underdog status and the scrappy status and That was my identity until this happened, at which point, maybe I, always being late to every party, (laughs) um, at this point, I realized like, oh, I have to part with that status. I am now considered part of the establishment. I am now somebody who, when I say things like that, they have more meaning or they mean rules about things. And maybe I should be more careful But the thing I can do is recognize that as a member of the establishment now, which is still insane to me because it was really recently that I wasn't, that people have the right to engage on this. And I've been so heartened by the amount of people who have reached out to me and who have told me their story about their rate and who have asked me for advice and who have asked me for what I made at certain places. And I believe in sharing that. People are allowed to be angry about it. I am still angry at everyone who makes more than I do. That is the way it works forever and ever. And there's so many people who make more than I do. But I have to realize that the bottom in this industry is terrible. And the only way I can think that I can help change things is by telling people what I make. And I guess you can't always be a hero for doing that. But I still believe in it. And I'm proud that I did it. And I wouldn't change it.
3: So I didn't, I, I try very hard not to be a weekend Twitter person. So I came to it kind of later being like, what, Good for what's you. going Good on? For here? you, Evan. But I mean, I don't always succeed. Let's be honest. But I thought there were, I mean, there were two things. One was, it seemed to me there was almost no one who was like, that it wasn't about you right. there was almost no one who was it like it wasn't about what me what the hell That's why, why I is didn't she getting paid in. that she shouldn't get paid that right people feel underpaid because they are and they're very upset about it because that's yeah. upsetting and it tapped into that and it wasn't about that and there were lots of people being like everyone should get paid this or this should be what people yes, should aspire there to were. But, but then the other funny thing was that that's literally like part of this book like if you read the Cosmo article yeah. and it was like i was doing what the men were doing. Right. That's the context of that quote, which is really a theme for one of the characters in your novel. It is a theme for
0: one of the the characters in my novel. She's a former men's magazine writer Mm -hmm. who left her men's magazine because she was not permitted to do what the men would do. I I don't think there's any discussion of rate in there. No,
3: I don't think so. But Um, it does talk about the types Um, types of stories that there's this sort of like archetypal like men's magazine writer who's the old school guy who gets sent to do all the crazy things ayahuasca and whatever right and she doesn't get to do those things
0: no and i got but i got i got work where i got work because i was willing to see the world through the eyes of a man certainly right like i was willing to sit and listen to men's stories and not interfere with them And when I started doing this, which is 10 years ago this November, that is what was called for. And it was also really wonderful to leave my own... It was like entering a fantasy camp where you could just find out about other problems that have nothing to do with your self-consciousness about your gender.
3: Let's talk a little bit about the novel itself. Thank you. This novel, it really... uh, it really got me. I, I will say that I, when I got to, like, kind of, like, the third part of it mm-hmm. at the end, which I found to be mind-bending in a very interesting way, I also was sitting up late reading it, and there were two people in a relationship outside my window screaming <gasps> at each other. Really? And I felt like you should sell it as, like, a soundtrack for reading the book. It's, like, two people in an <laughs> argument. <laughs> that sounds because...
0: That sounds amazing. It sounds like <laughs> everyone would like that.
3: Um, but where are along the way of writing journalistic profiles and stories, did you start this novel?
0: I started this in September of 2016. And I had to write a book to get ahead because my children were starting to need me a lot in a way that they hadn't before, like navigating school stuff and starting to get into that kind of elementary school, you know, and I wanted to be homework. This was our
3: last I feel like this was the end of our last <laughs>
0: really? conversation yeah. almost. Yeah, I don't remember. What did I say? I,
3: well, I don't remember if it was in our conversation or now just something that I've read in an interview with you, but it was sort of like you were like, you can't uh- uh-huh your way through game night the right. way you can like exactly. or homework, the way you can like uh uh-huh your way through Daniel Tiger.
0: Right. Right. Like nobody ever <laughs> noticed that it was That that my computer on my lap during Daniel Tiger, like now they look at my phone and they see they're like General Zod with the eyes or who the guy, the big guy. And he just like, oh, yeah, he can melt things with his eyes. So that's my children. Yeah. Yeah. That's my children when I pull out. My phone or a computer, or they say you're always working. And I was, I'm checking the weather. I'm checking to see when your game is. I swear. Um,
3: at the time, last time we talked, I did not. Uh, I just nodded through uh, Daniel Tiger. I didn't actually know what that was. Now oh, I do. really? You pulled I'm very it off. Now with
0: you're it. like, here. What's your favorite episode? I had like a uh,
3: like a <laughs> six month old or something at the time, so oh. I wasn't there.
0: But. So
3: anyway, that oh, anyway, has changed. Thank you. That now has changed. They so have different requirements. I
0: wanted to do something that required less travel. So I was trying to think up a nonfiction book because I had had editors who were interested in publishing or talking about publishing a nonfiction book that I would write. And I was filled with so much dread. The idea that one of these articles, which are exactly, exactly the right length for my metabolism and my interest... And I knew so many people who were on books and who had this like far off look in their eyes because it just was, it was fun for six months and now it just had to be done. And they had blown a deadline and it was just this albatross. I was like, this is why you do it. I'm going to do it. And I started thinking of ideas and I had a good idea. And then one day maybe the fifth person I know who was getting divorced, which is what happened to me when I turned 40, everyone started telling me that we're getting divorced, came to me. And we met and we talked about his divorce. And then he showed me his phone. And he showed me his apps. And he showed me all of these, the women who were sending him these pictures. And he was like someone that when we were in the 90s, he was not getting very laid is how i think you're supposed to put it and now it was all happening for him and i was blown away by this so i called up my editor
3: had you I, already proposed the idea for the book the other book no the i was like about book?
0: to start taking meetings and or maybe i was writing a like a two page summary or something and I called up my GQ editor and I said, we should, like, people are dating on apps now was basically like my pitch. And he said to me, you know, you're not usually this out of touch, but I guess it was bound to happen at some point. And he said he was very good at lovingly letting me down, like when I pitched a meatloaf profile, um, which I still think would have been good. He he said, I would love to read this somewhere else, the idea that people who were, like, had to show up in their human form in the 90s, now got to just sit back, because, you know, he's my age. He said, but the GQ reader will not really understand what you're talking about, because the GQ reader has never not had apps, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you'd be writing one of those old lady stories where, like, did you hear that there are apps now? And they'd be like, yeah, old lady, we heard about the apps.
3: Oh, yeah, I don't want to disagree with said editor, but does that really comport with, like, who's actually reading GQ at this point? Who
0: knows? Okay. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, but I, in that moment, had an idea that this should be the book. And then when I sat down, it like, minutes later, like, you know how I work. I just do it. I got off the phone. I sat down at a Panicotidian, and I wrote the first 10 pages. And then that was it. And then I started taking the meetings about doing this nonfiction book. And it filled me with dread even more. And I went to pitch Andy Ward on this book that filled me with dread. And he said... Andy
3: Ward at Random House. Andy
0: Ward at Random House. And he said, I also edit fiction, which I guess I knew. And I just started talking about my fiction. And that night I sent him the first 10 pages and the last 10 pages. And he liked them and his liking them was enough to propel me to finish it it was like I was doing it with the like the stakes were I would have to write a nonfiction book if I didn't finish this book or if it didn't work out and I decided to put all of it into this book and I kept it up as a word document behind all the other word documents and six months later I was finished with it but it wasn't great but it was as great as i could make it on my own and i'm a big believer in the How did you know process. that it wasn't great? Cuz it wasn't there was something i was trying to pull off in it that i did not feel like i did meaning i had a good beginning i had a good ending i was very worried about the middle it was a third person book when i first sold it mm. And I sold it to Andy, who was a GQ editor and who I felt would know how to dismantle what needed to be dismantling. Like I needed someone who would edit me. And, and that's how it went. We, we went four rounds. I was fairly tortured about the whole thing. And it took a year to revise. But the same week I sold it, I also accepted the New York Times offer. And so I had started a full-time job and the job was very demanding. So it was hard to find time to revise.
3: Yeah. And so how did you?
0: I did it on airplanes and I did it in hotel rooms on the last day of the story. Or sometimes like I'd go to Budapest to interview Antonio Banderas and there was a day in between. And instead of seeing Budapest, which I'm sure is a beautiful city, I revised it. There's a scene in there in Budapest That was written, that was written from my hotel room, like in longing. Like, look how nice this looks. I wish I could go.
3: But even that is the energy required. I'll just tell you, like, if I go on a reporting trip and it gets to be, I've done my interviews during the day and then I'm back in my hotel room, like, I can't even, like, type up my notes a lot of times. Like, I will try to have the discipline to do that. But half the time I'm like, oh, Shawshank Redemption or whatever, you know, like, uh, I haven't seen that in a year. Right. So, I mean, it's weird to ask where the energy came from, but where, like, what was pulling you to keep pushing on with the novel while you also, you could have just shelved it.
0: I could have shelved it, but I am very practical. Like the energy is, is an efficiency and an economy of motion wherein if I write a paragraph that gets removed from a story, it doesn't get removed. It goes into a file of paragraphs that one day I will use when I'm old or something. And I try to be as efficient a writer as I can, which is not to say I don't rewrite all the time. I do, but I'm also fast. And so the thing I've learned is that if you can write something in this kind of like heave, like you're picking it up and throwing it over your head, if you could do that, then the end of the book and the beginning of the book will be kind of one in the same if it's done, even in a magazine story, if it's done all as one big thought that you're having, which was hard because this was six months of doing this, mm-hmm. usually it's five days. I think that the tragedy would be for me, especially when I was a free, I was writing this as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. The tragedy for me would have been that I would have devoted any time to anything that was not lucrative. And I don't mean that in a, in a money way i mean it as like i would have to revisit every minute i took away from my children and my husband and say where did that time go it went to this half done thing that's unacceptable to me like i i can't live in that world i can't live in a world where i know that my children's childhoods are finite everything i do is efficient in the not great way i'm not bragging here like i think this is huge problem. When I started at The Times and I had this set amount of work to do, I didn't know how to do a set amount of work. I didn't know how to not be scrambling. It had been years. And suddenly I had to wake up to my life around me and say, Hey, relationship with my husband, is this going okay? Hey, relationship with my children, is this going okay? You know, does anyone need therapy? Does anyone need... Do
2: does I it, need therapy? Like,
0: does anyone, like, are you sure you're enrolled in the right sports for you? How are your friendships? When I was suddenly able to look up and see that, it was so much, and I cannot tell you how much easier it is to write a novel than to look around at your life and wonder if you're doing it right.
3: And are you ever, have you been able to turn off that accounting in your head in either department? Like, if you're with your kids, can you turn off the accounting relating to work? And if you're at work, can you not?
0: Not well, but I try to. It's a work I try to do, but it's very hard for me to be a mindful person. It's very hard for me to not have the panic of what else I can be doing. And I think that's my greatest flaw as a person that my family is in a relationship with. But on the other hand, it all gets done. You know, the carpools get driven. They get to their games. They, I have not missed more than two sports games in these years. Meaning I have been at every basketball game. I have been at every soccer game i have like those are the things i won't miss probably because they give me incredible joy but also i i interviewed a sexual harassment victim at my older son's basketball game like those are the things that are crazy to me that he didn't know i was doing and that i was only a body there so i was there for him as a body and i was my mind was with this woman but I don't know if I'm doing it right. I, I, does anyone know? If, are you doing? Do you know if you're doing it right? Like the calculus. Of- I,
3: well, it's funny you ask me because we did this live show right back at the beginning of the year, and I asked people if they had questions, or we asked people on the podcast if they had questions for you, mm-hmm. and. A number of people women wrote to say they had a question a variation on sort of like how does she possibly do it how is she this productive I know she has a family how does it all work and then I asked you that question and then (laughs) one of the things you said was I bet you never get (laughs) asked that question and I have subsequently you know when you get interviewed and someone says are there any questions that I didn't ask you that I that's the (gasps) question that I say
0: you're you're being the change you want (laughs) to see in the world but you know what I've adjusted on that question Hmm. I have since adjusted on that question and the answer is now you're not asked that question because not as much as expected of you mm-hmm. right do you notice that you know well, that's your in kids. this
3: that is in this novel in a serious way that idea the idea right. of i i which i have 100 experience which is right. if you do some things uh people laud you for th- like if you cook the dinner and yeah. you pick them up and you drop them off
0: amazing okay yeah. i heard of a guy Who went? Who left work early to pick up his kids, and his boss called him Mister Mom, (laughs) which was like what? Like, yeah, that's what. That's what. That's maybe. Maybe it wasn't the impetus of the book, but it was the water I was swimming in. And I, my husband, literally does half. He does every meal, and he drops off the kids at school. And people, when I go pick them up, say, Your husband is amazing. And when I was, when my parents got divorced, people would always say to me and my sisters, It's so amazing how your father takes you every weekend. And we were like, What do you mean? Like, we're his children, and he gets the two funnest days of the week. He doesn't have to do homework with us, he doesn't have to put us to bed on time. And I grew up watching this, I and I still see it with my husband. Oh, my God, he's amazing. And it must be amazing to be a man. I would love that kind of approbation. But
3: in the novel, you're inhabiting that man's mind. Yeah. And I wondered, reading it, I mean, I'm sure it's an amalgamation of lots of people you know or knew, um, but I wondered how much profiling men had helped you or did it help you in any way? in occupying that perspective.
0: I think more than I think the thing that made me good at profiling men in the first place was the fact that I was raised on books like this. Mm-hmm. Like I was raised on books by men about men and from the point of view of of a man. And I've always found a lot in common with that point of view except for these these small things. And I don't see men as so different from women. And I'm not dismissive of men, right? Like they, you know, they, they're they real. <laughs>
3: hey, we're out here. They're
0: out there. They're out there. They are not a rumor. So it is, it was always easy for me to profile men. And also it was more fun to profile men because very often when I profiled women, the story, well, first of all, sometimes I would be sent by women's magazines profile women which is not sending me to profile women it was they send me with a list of questions to ask in the order that they want them asked in Hmm. and a lot of them were they the magazine or they the subject the the magazine and a lot of them were like what's your least favorite part of your body and the things that i like i would be sitting there eating a cheeseburger asking some poor woman what the her least favorite part of her body was or watching her order food Knowing that they were going to ask me to put the food in. And I always felt very, very like that there was so much tension surrounding those interviews. And then also, the stories that they would tell me would be about how they defied the odds to make it to being somebody that I was profiling, which was not as interesting. It was all the same. It was all it was inspiring, but it, it's not what I would call interesting. But then I'd profile these men, and men didn't have any obstacles to getting to where they were. So they would talk about their souls. They would talk about their the things that really bothered them. And it was through that more than anything else that I learned how to talk about my own problems. Right? To talk about problems not as if I don't have the right to them. Like I learned from those men how to feel entitled to my problems and to feel comfortable in like the yearnings I felt or the failures that I felt or the striving that I felt or the greed that I felt or the sadness that I felt or the happiness that I felt. And it was easier for me also to inhabit a man for this because if you look at a man's phone after his divorce, it is filled with a playground of delight. And if you look at a woman's phone, it is very often filled with like, Ugh, I guess that guy's the best of all of them. So it would have been a totally different book to write it from a woman's point of view. It would have been a book that did not first intrigue you with possibility. It would have filled you from the things I had seen. The only thing I would be able to accurately report is something very dismal.
3: There's a moment in there where you, there's a character, magazine writer, and one of the things she says is, the only way I could write about women or myself was to Trojan horse that into a man and people give a shit about it. And it comes at this point in the book where I've started. I was like, "Aha!"
1: <laughs> um,
3: and the thing that happens to novelists when they go out and they get interviewed is that everyone says, uh, "Which one's you?" Or right. they say, "They're both you." Or, "How much right. of this is you?" Right? W- were you ready for that?
0: I mean, she's a my narrator is a former men's magazine journalist. Yes, with two children living in New Jersey, like. Obviously I was ready for it but I don't know if anybody realized the degree to which I was fucking with them right like that that's the other thing it's like sure you go think that I'm this character so that you don't at all think I'm this other character is like a big it's a big deal but I'm also all of them I, you know I interview a lot of authors and I've heard, I've never had the experience of someone tell like get offended by that question of which one is you But I've heard that people do it, to which I would say to them, like, as an interviewer, like, what do you think we're supposed to ask? Like, what's the question we're supposed to ask when faced with your fiction? If not, where did it come from? Right? That was the tension in my story about Bradley Cooper. Mm -hmm. Like, you think I have no right to ask what the inspiration for this was after you've agreed to sit down for a personality profile? We should
3: say Bradley Cooper sort of refused he did sort of like I prefer not to yeah. response to yeah. being interviewed by you.
0: Yeah, he was, he came at the appointed time. We had a delightful time and he just did not understand why I wanted to understand the inspiration for any of this or what the yearning was that made him say this is the movie I'm going to spend two years on. I think it's a valid question. Well, I think most questions are valid and I think that there's nothing more flattering than people wanting to know where it came from, because it means they were moved by it. My questions for Bradley Cooper came from how moved I was by A Star is Born. And I think that's what those questions are. They're like, oh, the reason this thing exists, the reason you and I are doing this right now, this podcast, the reason I write these profiles is because people want to know after they've been touched by something, after they've been moved by it, if we're the same. And am I going to sit here and pretend that everything in a novel is an act of imagination? I think that's the problem that people have with the question is that how dare you think that my imagination is lacking. Mm -hmm. But Jonathan Franzen, when I interviewed him, Mm -hmm. did not say anything like that. He said, I think that a person only has six fully realized novels in them because I don't know if a lifetime can contribute to more. Meaning there's not a one-to-one trade on information in there. A lot of those stories are stories I've heard. I'm a journalist. right? But a lot of them really happen. Like I, I always say this, like it's all true and none of it happened. I now understand when I go into my next profile of an author i will understand that the protagonist in it that appears to be the person is not fully constructed of the person's experiences it's that you ro- like you robbed all the people of the experience
3: do you think it's going to be you've been in atlantic city reporting something oh, you yeah. mentioned how hard is it going to be to come off of this back to what you were doing before? Do you feel like you will view it differently or experience it will be difficult to get back into the journalistic side from, I don't know, from being on the other end of people asking questions? I mean, questions maybe. From,
0: Most of the questions that have been asked to me were asked in the months leading up to publication. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in Atlantic City. I was there for four days. And I remember thinking, oh my god, this is what I should be doing this is like the thing I am good at. I am not good at the other thing. I'm not good at promotion. I am not good at talking about myself. This is the thing that I am good at, is sitting here and observing and making notes that I think will thrill my editor and sending him text messages and pictures from where I am. And I'm very happy that it's coming soon. I I go back to work next week because sometimes lately I'm sitting there having a conversation with someone and I'm thinking like, Oh, it's been so long since I wasn't talking about me. It's disgusting. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to like... This is, this is the people real... People asking about your marriage. I know. There are a lot of people asking about my marriage. Um, but don't worry. I'm asking about theirs too. Um, there are people asking about my marriage. There are people asking about... There are a lot of people who think this book is about them. That's the craziest thing I've ever... Like people asking me, hey... Do you know my ex-husband or do you know my ex-wife? Which I never ever, ever, ever encountered. But I've also never written fiction, so I don't know.
3: Isn't that the best compliment? It is the best compliment,
0: and also it makes me so nervous. It makes me so, so nervous. Someone over the weekend said that it's going to be a novel that causes divorces or a lot of fights. And I like the I don't like that, but I like the idea of it being like the ring. Like, once you see it, you get, like something degrades in you. Or I don't know. I don't know. Is that, is that fucked up? It's totally fucked up. Um, I can't wait to go back to work because I love working and because I've been done with this for so long. And I think that the thing I'm good at is that thing, not, not this. Like, right now, you know, those stories are coming out and I re- retweet them, right? Because... I'm supposed to retweet it because that's what you should do. But then you look at my feed. Like if you go to my feed, it is the most obnoxious. Like I never retweeted praise before. But also, I was working at the New York Times and GQ. You you were either reading it or you weren't. It had a big enough platform. Yeah. Whereas Random House made an investment in me and I have to kind of push this machine up. It's very undignified to just keep like retweeting yourself and congratulating yourself and retweeting praise for yourself that I cannot wait to go back to not talking about myself yeah I like engagement um, so I like social media and I'd like to go back to engaging as opposed to promoting mm-hmm. that's the thing I'm were you about.
3: already shifting it all in your work because the Kay Jeweler story I mean I had a like a pang of envy when that story came out, partly just because I thought, like, oh, she can do it all. Like, you can go do a deep investigative story for years. Like, it's easier to kind of put someone in a box, even right. your a person you love and respect, and say, like, <laughs> oh, you know, they're just doing this. Right. right. And then it's like, oh, no, no, no she right. can do that also. Did you feel like you were you were turning your work towards that?
0: No, I didn't think I was doing anything. I thought mm. I have. So I have been on that story for so long when i was writing it i would say diamonds are forever and so is this story um that when people would call me a celebrity profiler it would be confusing to me because i would think it was reductive and then i'd have to remember that this story hadn't come out <laughs> but i did like you know i did that weight watcher story yeah, yeah, i did yeah. that i feel like it's all been leading up to that but I know that I have a couple of more stories, not deep investigations. I'm not on one of those now, but I have other stories that are non-profile. You know, I did that UFC story. One of my favorite stories I ever did was this story about the UFC that was that was about a subculture. And I'm doing a couple of those now, but I also just got assigned a profile. And it feels like so wonderful to go back to that. I think that profiles are strangely reduced as easy work Mm -hmm. because maybe they come off, maybe they're not hard work in terms of, you know, getting the person or convincing people around you or the volume of interviews you have to do. But it is incredibly stressful work to be in this relationship with this person And then completely shiv them the minute you're done with them. That I think people don't take into account. That, like, at my most prolific, what my life looked like was creating these relationships with people and then betraying them. And that always made me sad. Like, where did that time go? What does that mean that that's what the profile was about? But I don't know. I really love profiles. And lately, I've come around to. I guess everyone has a métier. Like I guess everyone has the thing that they do. Your thing, like your crime stuff, that's your thing.
3: I guess so. It is. Well, that's. I mean,
0: my mother read your book and she kept saying, "How did he find it? How did he (laughs) find it?" And I was like, "I don't know. I don't know how he found it."
3: Well, that's. I want to. I want to revisit the point I was trying to make in that question because I feel like that question could come off as like you were doing fluff, and then I realized you could do serious stuff. But it's more like. I realized. I
0: didn't think that that was the way you were asking it at all. I think that, like, the skill I have, which is getting in the room and then staying in the room until someone is like, why is this bitch still in the room? Like, get her out of there, is a a journalistic skill that is not a fluffy Mm -hmm. skill. Like, there are people who are trying to actively always prevent your story, prevent you from seeing it. From seeing the things that, you, that, that would be good to see, there's a lot of convincing going on. There's a lot of comforting going on. There's a lot of listening. And there's a lot of dealing with the fact that somebody in the middle of talking to you can suddenly decide that you are the worst. And then they close up. Like, those things are very tense. And it's a very specific skill that I have that I think can defray it. Or that lets me stay. Like, people, there there are people who... One of the other conversations after the Gwyneth Paltrow story was, well, you know, she had so much access. I was given 40 minutes. Like, I was given two sets of 40 minutes. And I stayed. Like, I... Like, you
3: ending up at her house was not... And, like, dinner and all that. That was not the agreement uh in the
0: first place. Grant, it was not a casual dinner. She invited me to it after I said... I would like more time um, and I would like to really see like and I and I made a case for it, but I was not given anything in specific. There was someone, I can't remember who, who said that the Harvard scene happened because of course it was going to happen. Like you go to the Harvard scene in exchange for the rest of it, which was very incorrect. The correct version of that is that I went to the Harvard scene so that I could get background on her business because she would be talking about it she there. She was
3: speaking at Harvard business She was speaking School. at Harvard.
0: And it was off the record. We worked very hard to get the Harvard scene per Harvard onto the record. And it was a lot of negotiation and a lot of agreement and a lot of... But that was not all... The Harvard scene wasn't even in the first draft because it was off the record. But then I realized we needed... We needed a scene in which people were admiring her. My editor felt that that's what we needed. We needed a scene in which people were learning from her and that we could show her as what she is now, which is a business person, as opposed to every other scene, which wouldn't have characterized her as a business person. It would have characterized her as Gwyneth Paltrow, who is now running a business. And I wanted to take her business very seriously. So ultimately, we asked all sorts of permissions and got the Harvard scene back in there. But that's the work. The work is like constant begging. It's feeling stupid all the time. It's asking. I always ask if I could come over for dinner. And most of the time, people say no. And so now I can be watching a movie and... I'll have to know that an actor in it, after having met me, decided that I could not come to his house for dinner, (laughs) which is a fair thing. It's totally fair that you don't want me to see your family. You don't want to see me. You don't want. I don't know why you did it, but it's still a relationship. It's still feelings. It's still a conversation in which something that is similar to friendship is being played out, or something that is similar to companionship, something like something human is happening. That's what I'll say. Some not friendship, something human is happening. And you then have to go leave it and remember who you work for. And that to me is harder than any single thing I did on the k story. Is knowing that somebody looked me in the eye told me their story and that I now had to convey it through a prism of honesty as opposed to the prism of their story. Does that make had, sense? Have
3: have people felt shivved? Have they come to you afterwards and said, "Only I see what you did to me?
0: Only once and a half.
3: I hope it wasn't Billy Bob Thornton.
0: It was not. Billy Bob Thornton Billy Bob Thornton's one of his people said to me that that no one had ever understood Billy Bob Thornton quite that way. But who else has spent four days with him? That it profile was is it was magical. If I could just do that profile over and over, I still think it's the best thing I've ever written, and nobody read it because it was published on November tenth. 2016. 2016, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly when no one was reading a Billy Bob song. And I remember thinking, come on, guys, it'll cheer you up. <laughs> Nobody was having it.
3: <laughs> um, but one and a half, half.
0: The half was someone who really loved the story. And then when there was a reaction to part of it that came later, like a kind of maybe a People magazine, Us Weekly pickup of it, that people then did the thing that they do, which is reduce the thing to just that quote. He felt that the press around him was unfair. But I also work very hard to not include quotes that will get pickup. And I should not say that <laughs> because probably my editors, maybe, I don't know if they would. They want that pickup, don't they? I don't know. I think that it it changes the nature of a story. I think it's a better trick if you could tell a story without those quotes And still tell a good story. And also, I don't include a lot of quotes. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. But I've seen it screw people. Like Oprah Winfrey was very nice to get on the phone with me for my Weight Watcher story. And we were talking about body acceptance. And she said, if I'm over 200 pounds, I cannot accept myself because. And there was a because to it. I'm worried about this. And I'm worried about this. And I don't feel like this. And I don't feel like me and the pickup on it was, if I'm over 200 pounds, I don't accept myself. And so it looked like, because nobody is going to click on that and read that happened in the like 7,000th word of that story. Nobody is going to click on that and read it and see the nuanced argument that she was making as to why she was still dieting. And I thought that was very unfair. And I, I couldn't have, I like. I try to test it all for that thing, and that didn't fail my test. It seems
3: hard to predict to a certain extent.
0: But there's something in you that wants to protect everyone who agreed to talk to you. Like, that's the thing, is that people deserve some kind of consideration just for having agreed to speak with you. Well,
3: it's funny because you're talking about, like, shiving them in a certain way, which is, which is pulling to, back yeah. and taking the perspective mm-hmm. of your employer and what what's wanted out of a profile but not in this other way
0: not in this other way ever and not i mean the quote is not even that's a little shiv but when i think of the shiving i think of it as i am going to tell a story i'm going to represent the reader in this story and not the person who had the relationship with you that's the shiving and it's not dishonest I don't work for that person. I work for my editors and I work for the reader. But I know that it's, I don't know if they ever think of it that way, but I think of it as that way. And I have a very hard time seeing them in the culture afterward. I always feel this great deal of shame.
3: Do you think that they anything could change in terms of that relationship because of the novel, because you're being profiled, because you're showing up in the media or mm-hmm. becoming known for a certain thing where you could walk into a room and someone could say, oh, I'm being profiled by Taffy. And that could be meaningful to them in a way that previously you were kind of slipping in under the radar?
0: I don't know. I'm pretty surprised to find that people are still reading novels in a big kind of community way. Like I remember... I remember when like Gone Girl, remember the summer where everyone was reading Gone Girl and everyone kept missing their train stop because they couldn't look up from Gone Girl. I remember writing this and thinking, I don't think that happens anymore. I think the internet has evolved too much and our smartphones have evolved too much and they take too much of like I think it's now a special skill to be able to make it through a novel or to read a novel on the train and not keep checking your email and things like that. Um, and I see people on the train constantly watching movies that they've downloaded. I see that and a lot. I yeah, and I think like. Or reality show. I mean, there's like sometimes I'm like, oh, that's a good movie. I approve of that. And then then I'm like, oh, Bachelor in Paradise. You downloaded that for the train, which is which is maybe a snobbery, but it's also like it's also back to the efficiency of time. I don't ever do anything just because I enjoy it. Like, that's the problem. Like, I should aspire to be like the person who's downloading Bachelor in Paradise because I don't, I would never do anything that's just fun on a train.
3: And here, I thought you were here for this interview just because. I was. <laughs> this was the thing.
0: This was the thing. This is, my, you know, this is incredibly efficient because I am enjoying it. And also, it is an interview for my book. And this is what I do. This is what I, this is who I am now, Evan. <laughs> I think that we'll probably cut it off there. Right there. That's, that's your it. kicker. She's <laughs> done it. Evan, that's your kicker.
3: <laughs> that's it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Taffy bronis Ackner for coming back in the studio a second time amidst her publicity blitz. Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Louisa Garbowit. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp. Go to ReadThisSummer.com to check out all the great books they've picked for this year's Decatur Book Festival. And thanks to Pit Writers. We will see you next week.